Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Talking Metal. This is a best of edition. And I'm going to tell you uh, what we're going to hear, what classic Talking Metal moment we're going to hear today in just a moment. So stay tuned for that. But before I do, let's uh, talk about supporting this show. Go to TalkingMetal.com and use our Amazon links to jump over to Amazon and then go about making your purchases. Uh, it's very important. We, we really appreciate you using those links. We really need you to use those links. Again, Amazon is the place to do all your online shopping, and it's just an additional step, just going to TalkingMetal.com and linking on over to Amazon to make your purchases. Um, you can like our Facebook page. There's a bunch of Facebook pages out there. There's the talking, the official Talking Metal pa- Facebook page, which I run. Talking Metal Digital page is out there. And uh, give that a like, connect with us there, both of those pages. You can also write a review for us on iTunes. That's very helpful. Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes if you don't do that. Another thing you can do to support us is a simple PayPal donation. And my PayPal account is linked through TalkingMetal.com. You can find it there. That's about it, you know. Um, go to talkingmetal.com, visit uh, our site, and look at the pictures I put up in the show notes. And spread the word. Buy a T-shirt in the merch section on talkingmetal.com. So, having said that, this is again a best of episode. We're gonna go back all the way to 2007, and this interview was originally posted in episode 122 of Talking Metal. It's with Martin Popoff, and we talk about Black Sabbath. It was uh, called the Black Sabbath Special, actually. So what what I'm realizing is there's a lot of great interviews from Talking Metal history. You know, we've been on for 11 years this week. Uh, so there's just a shitload of content out there. And I feel like a lot of the old stuff is, is kind of hard to, to find. Even this Martin Popoff interview, I, I kept thinking, you know, Martin did a great interview with us where he, we, we, talk, we spoke about Black Sabbath and some other stuff. And 
even for me, it took me a freaking 10 minutes to find the thing online. So, um, having said that, occasionally I'd like to go back and revisit some of the great stuff that, that we've done in the past. And that's what we're going to do here. This interview again was recorded in early 2007. It was originally published on talkingmetal.com and iTunes in uh, January 17th, 2007. And Martin came on to talk about uh, his his book that he wrote about Black Sabbath. I since then he's published another book on Black Sabbath. So there's which I actually read. Uh, and it's excellent. He actually gave me a special thanks in the in the beginning of it. And that book is uh, Black Sabbath Fact, F-A-Q, All That's Left to Know on the First Name in Metal. Great, great read, Black Sabbath Fact. Um, check that out. And in the book he was promoting during this Perform or this interview back in 2007 was uh, Black Sabbath Doom Let Loose, which is another great book. He's also since written the Aussie book Steal Away, Steal Away the Night, uh, which is a, a picture book. I bought it, haven't read it yet, and planning to do so shortly. But Martin Popoff is an incredibly knowledgeable guy when it comes to heavy metal, one of the most knowledgeable guys, in my opinion. And having said that, this interview is just a lot of fun to listen to. And I feel like you guys like listening to the historians. Um, uh, I, I just have gotten a lot of response on the interviews I've did with Greg Reinoff, Renoff, Greg Renoff, uh, the Van Halen ones I've done with him. And this kind of reminded me of that. We just, Martin and I just talk some Sabbath. Then we go in some other directions. You know, we talk about Martin's favorite 80s metal records. Uh, it's just a good listen. It's not exclusively about Sabbath, but mostly about Sabbath. And remember, this is before Dio died. This was recorded in 2007. Uh, Heaven and Hell had had begun, and he was playing with, with Geezer and Iomi and Vinnie Apice in the band, Heaven and Hell. So we, we talk a little bit about that. And, uh, you know, it, it, I don't think it feels dated, this this interview, and I do believe it's a great listen and I'm sure a lot of you listeners probably weren't with us back at that time in 2007. So having said that, give it a chance, check it out, and uh, support Martin. Go track down his books. They're, they're a good read, always. And we should get a, an update from Martin Popoff, get him back on the, the podcast sometime soon. I, he's been on two or three times, and he's always been a, a great one to chat to. So with, uh, with that said, let's check out a little classic Sabbath. We'll listen to my chat with Martin, and then we'll end with a little sound sample of Dio era Sabbath, little TV crimes. Anyways, let's get into a little Sabbath. This is a national acrobat, and it'll be followed by Martin Popoff and myself talking about Black Sabbath. I am the world
Hey, this is Mark Striegel of the Talking Metal Podcast, and we are very excited because on the line with us, we have Martin Popoff. How you doing, Martin? Doing just fine there, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you bet. I'm a big fan of your writing, your magazine, your website. I am uh, just finishing up reading the Black Sabbath book that you wrote, Doom Let Loose, and it is an amazing read. And wanted to talk to you about that and then also uh you know talk to you about the website some of your other books and uh, just talk some metal with you in general sure sounds good so martin how did you compile the information for this book i mean it's so detailed it's so in depth that i mean i was just thinking you must have done hours and hours of interviews and and months and months of research well i don't know not really i i don't know i um Basically, uh, all these these biotype books that I've done are, are more or less the same. Now, this one, yeah, this one did get a little extra attention. I actually had an editor on it and stuff like that. And, um, you know, we off, obviously got a lot of photos and graphics and things. But really, I, I only decide to do one of these books if I have a huge backlog of my own interviews with these guys. Right. And with Sabbath, I have talked to, you know, various members probably added up. It's probably 30 or 40 interviews. Wow. Uh, you know, given how many people have gone through that band. So I had lots of interviews. I had a lot of my own stuff. So that, that gives you the basis of saying, right, well, I've got something here, and a whole bunch of this will be exclusive at least. And then, you know, I, I just I just pick up other press just like other people do, go through my old Circus and Cream magazines and Hit Paraders and stuff like that and, and find a few quotes here and there that make sense. And But, yeah, you know, and, and at one point you kind of get – thinking, okay, I, I might do a book on this band one day, so the next time I talk to them about something, I'll hit them with a few extra old questions until I've kind of worn out my welcome on that or whatever, or ran out of time. So, you know, it, it really wasn't uh, that much work, or, or you, you know, probably just like anything, you just go and forget how much work it was. Right. Now, right off the bat, I'd like to mention that this book, the best place to get it is probably your website, right? MartinPopoff.com? Well, this particular book has really good distribution. I mean, it's probably everywhere. It's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders, and all that. But my site, I do buy a supply of all my books, and then, you know, I, I sign them and sell them one at a time, mail order kind of thing. And I do have it at my site. And a whole lot of my other books, I think I have the last copies of, of many of them. And then we've done a bunch of books through Metal Blade as well, where those are really not available in too many places. Um, and again, yeah, I any of my books that are available anywhere, I, I at least have some of them. But yeah, there are even some that are right out of print that I don't even have. Cool. And like you mentioned, one cool thing that I have in my book is that you signed it, and that's because it was bought through your site. Yeah, And sure. So talking about Black Sabbath, going back to the very beginning, one thing that, you know, we won't, there's so much in this book, and there's so much great stuff that's written, and we'll only have time to probably, you know, to talk about certain things. But one of the things I really like that you show is how important each individual member of the original Black Sabbath was to sabbath's sound and success it wasn't just tony's riffs or ozzy's voice but there was there were there were a real team for sure and i've always felt that i mean of of course okay number one there is tony he's the riff master he's the inventor of heavy metal for sure there's ozzy and his personality and his likability and his voice definitely but yeah this is kind of a strange band because the bass player wrote all the lyrics so you've got geezer there writing all the lyrics and man, you know, based on the solo material, I just think Bill Ward's like the genius of the band that is totally unheralded. He's like the 
he's like the John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin, the, the quiet guy who's just so musical, or at least proven later in later years through like that Ward One along the way and when the bow breaks, how how amazing he is just as a writer. So yeah, he's and as a drummer, he's a totally, totally unique drummer. And of course, he was in on some of the writing as you go along. But um, yeah, you're right. That's a that's an interesting point. I mean, I mean, there were no there were no slackers in the band. Although as as drugs and drink uh, took over, you know, everybody seemed to want to slack. Right. Uh, you know, at various points, and that caused a lot of tension with these guys. Well, the one thing I, I did not know, which I learned from your book, was how involved like Bill was, you know, with kind of uh, even watching over the money at, at one point and yeah. uh, taking on manager-type roles. Yeah, or trying to, and you even get a sense from, from Bill when you talk to him. I mean, he's one of the one of the coolest guys to interview. He's just this really polite and soft-spoken, but he always has insightful things to say. You know, he was he's almost like the psyche of the band. You know, he, he kind of keeps everybody in line or, or reads everybody properly, where, you know, someone like Geezer or Tony... Um, I, I think they're a little quieter and and just don't don't let their feelings out or even let information out as much as someone like Bill would. And same with Ozzy. I mean, Bill Bill was really the guy who probably held the whole thing together. Definitely, definitely. Now going to the actual records, I know, um, you know, there are so many Black Sabbath records that you know we won't talk about each and every one of them. But I wanted to touch upon. Uh, let's start off with maybe some of. Uh, your favorites, Masters of Reality. Yeah, Master of Reality, I thought was an amazing album, um, simply because I, I, the production on it is just insane. It's just so loud and bass heavy and guitar heavy, and that you know the heavy songs in that are are just the classics. I mean, I'm no, I'm really not a big fan of the first or the second album as much, and really the second album is probably just because I'm sick of it more than anything because that's where a lot of the big hits came from. But um, Master of Reality is just this big, warm, bulldozing, heavy album, and, and definitely given its age, it's it's one of the handful of records that invented metal for sure. Definitely. And and that, of course, was their third record. And you mentioned their first and, and second record. I mean, the second record, it, it is nowadays, you know, very tough to listen to those songs over and over again. But yet it still seems like it's the one record that the general public point to as, you know, the definitive Sabbath record with War Pigs and Paranoid. Yeah, which is just, you know, the... the um stupidity and the sheep mentality of large crowds at work there, really. I mean, it's almost like every band, they have one record that everybody's got to own, and then a whole segment of fans can just drop off at that point. And, you know, Sabbath is, is partly to blame as well by just playing those songs endlessly over and over and over again, because basically Ozzy's comfortable with them. Right. But, you know, Iron Man, I've read, I've read, um, a lot of things, and it really makes sense that when people say that, okay, the vocal melody of this, there isn't one, it goes along with the riff, it's boring, it's just this, you know, it, it's really pretty rudimentary heavy metal. So when, when that's your biggest song, and Paranoid as well, which was written just like on the back of an envelope at the end of the session, you know, this little two-minute blast, the, these are these are actually two of their probably least considered and quickest written songs, I would imagine. And they're they're really not that sophisticated or great yet. They are the the calling cards of the band. So I I, I wouldn't doubt it if those songs actually even hurt their reputation a bit. Yeah, I mean I I read uh, an uh, interview with somebody somewhere, and they were t- talking about how college marching bands now you know 
in the Midwest are playing Iron Man as as part <laughs> oh, of their God. repertoire. Nice. Which, uh, but moving on, Volume Four, which you weren't quite as excited about. It's one of my favorite Black Sabbath records. But what what didn't work quite as well on Volume Four for you? I don't know. It's like this Dark Horse album of the classic, you know, beginning eight. It's the one that people kind of least know. The you know, they didn't play a lot of it live. Um, I found the arrangements or or maybe the sound or something it it just all had the same sort of churn throughout um i don't know if i could say much more than that yeah, de- yeah definitely it was it was pretty cool and it was definitely one of the first ones i ever got but you know to me i, I like the the dimensionality of the of the next bunch that come after that yeah of course sabbath bloody sabbath being next and and that it sounds so drastically different than volume 4 and it's something you you talk about in the book that they they really had kind of hit their mark at this point just with production and and songwriting yeah you know they they do you know they they've said in interviews and it's so funny to read back at those old interviews that oh we we like nice songs we like you know we want to do something commercial we don't want to just hit ourselves over the head all the time when really the the soft songs or the soft moments on that are bleak and not commercial and probably even scarier than all their heavy stuff um, so it, it's kind of interesting that way. I mean, they hit their stride, but one one wonders if it's a lot of booze and drugs that is helping you know those next two records be so insanely creative as they are. I mean, there's just so much going on on them, and so many avenues tried that it's really it's really like that that um, you know intense creativity that you saw out of some of the greatest, most intense creative '70s bands, which would be maybe Zeppelin or Queen. And basically, those two records are like Zeppelin or Queen records, or or say, um, you know, Sin After Sin or Stained Class as well. Definitely. That kind of thing. Yeah, and the cool thing about the book, again, which is Black Sabbath, Doom Let Loose, highly recommended for all the Talking Metal listeners, you get all sorts of cool little tidbits. Like, for example, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, uh, you mention Rick Wakeman from Yes is on that record. Yeah, and I I eventually talked to Rick a couple years ago, and we we talked about that. But yeah, this, this happened with these bands a lot of times. It's like whoever's in the studio next door with you or whatever. You're all kind of buddies. You just call somebody in. Hey, would you like to you know blow apart on this? And uh, and that happens. So and and Rick, you know, he looks like this uh, this scary guy in his long straight hair and his big robes. Uh, you, you'd think he would be kind of really antisocial or whatever. He's he's like a, just a totally normal, grounded, fun-loving guy wow. that, that really probably just fit right into Sabbath. And and I think, I'm not sure if I said this in the book or whatever, but I, I just recall people saying that he, he actually you know had more fun with Sabbath than he had with Yes. Yeah, you do mention that oh, in the in the book okay. that he hangs out at the bar with Sabbath, and yeah. I guess Yes was recording either down the street or in the same studio as them. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, yeah, and that would have been so seventy three. That would have been something like, um, oh, Tales of Topographic was seventy four. It could have been that. I'm not sure what they had as a seventy three album, but maybe close, no, close to the edge of seventy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess he was just around. Might have even been doing solo albums by then. Right. And the song "Who Are You" from Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath—that's you know something I didn't know. That's all Ozzy, right? Yeah, which is which is kind of a cool story. I mean, Ozzy just did not do a lot of writing. Um, I I think he probably felt pretty insecure about it. It sounded like uh, I got the impression that they all Geezer felt that way later too. Um, everybody felt insecure bringing their songs to each other because they were such a highly evolved unit together that 
it sounds like there was no pussyfooting around. It was just like, you, you know, you would just get slagged if they didn't like your songs. And I, and probably like a gang mentality, they would gang up on you. And then yeah. I remember Geezer saying at one point, oh, it made you not want to bring your stuff in. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, the next album, which has been one that, that I've heard Ozzy and I think even Tony say negative things about in the press, Sabotage. Yeah, um, I think those guys just say that kind of stuff more so because they remember what hell it was recording it because they were going through all those legal uh, woes. But, you know, a lot of Sabbath fans and, and a lot of, you know, serious Sabbath students, students of the band love that album. And I'd say it's my favorite Sabbath album. And I've always argued that it's probably one of my favorite albums of all time. You know, I usually put in there Led Zeppelin, uh, Physical Graffiti, even Clash London Calling. Sure. Um, you know, I put in Queen One. I put in Dictator's Blood Brothers. Um, you know, all, all those sorts of albums. But, you know, I, I always make the comment, too, that, uh, that you know, Sabotage and Physical Graffiti came out at the same time, and Sabotage covered it as, as much ground. It did, it did as well with one record. And, know, I mean, like, Sabbath, Buddy Sabbath, and Sabotage, for me personally, I mean, Ozzy has never sounded better on those records. His voice just sounds great. And I, I see in the book, you, you mentioned that one of the reasons they didn't play a lot of material off those records live was he had trouble repeating those live. Exactly, those yeah. Notes. Yeah, and, you know, you listen back to them, and, and you're right. I mean, Ozzy is just screeching and wailing and singing really strong and really high, and I guess you take that into a live environment, you can sort of forget it. Um, and I think uh, on some of those Castle reissues, whatever that live album was called, you, you got um, Megalomania and maybe Symptom of the Universe, a couple of those, and you can hear, yeah, it's, it's quite a strain. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And uh, I know when they, they did Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, I think, on the reunion tour, but it was like he was singing it an octave lower or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think I remember that. Yeah. So kind of jumping ahead, uh, Ronnie James Dio and enters the band at kind of an interesting time. Uh, Ozzy is gone. And not only is Ozzy gone, one thing I didn't realize that Bill Ward was gone and Geezer was gone, too. And it was basically, according to your book, Ronnie and Tony just started working on stuff without those guys, and I guess they kind of filtered back into the band eventually. Yeah, and then you know the the thing that a lot of people don't don't remember or realize um, when and you know on the tour of Heaven and Hell, uh, Bill was gone. I mean, he did a little bit of the first tour, so it was Vinny in there. So when people are talking about this Heaven and Hell band up now, you know, it really is Vinny's situation and not Bill's situation, and that's probably why Bill isn't in there. So he he didn't last very long in this situation. But yeah, it, it could have turned into something completely different. And, you know, there's a tantalizing little bit about uh, how some of that music might have even been worked out up by Ozzy a little bit before he left, which is kind of neat. Just like the whole, the whole, uh, the whole um, are there tapes with Bon Scott singing any Back in Black songs right. controversy, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it will, and and that may, reminds me of something you mentioned in the book, the the rumor of the uh, Led Zeppelin Black Sabbath jam that was maybe recorded, but probably not recorded. Yeah, yeah. That all started because I I had it from good sources. Um, one of my publishers, uh, who kind of knows a lot of this, uh, this circle of people, uh, I think he was actually in a room 
Uh, I'm not sure. I might have uh, explained this in fairly good depth there, but maybe not. But he was actually in a room where he pointed to the corner and said, what's that, Black Zeppelin? And the guy said, oh, yeah, those are just some tapes that, that we did a long time ago with, uh, you know, when they, they swapped singers and went down the road and, and did some songs together. So it actually all started from that. So it, that, that to me sounds pretty concrete. And then, of course, Shortly after that, any time I would talk to a Black Sabbath member, I'd ask them about it, and they'd all say, yeah, yeah, we did that, but I don't think we recorded any of it. Right. Yeah, that's exactly how you describe it yeah. in the book. I mean, yeah. it would be uh, it would be uh, something if those ever do come about and materialize. Yeah, that would be cool. I mean, you know, the other thing that is just kind of a drag is that there really aren't any Sabbath rarities, or very, very few, it, 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 and it amounts to nothing. I mean... The, the the coolest rarities there are really in this entire story of Black Sabbath are the are the two or three um, Ian Gillan era Born Again songs that that are basically truly finished off and sound great. Yeah. Um, and that's it. I mean, there's there's no old Aussie, there's no old Dio stuff. So it, it's kind of a drag. There's these guys just did not have you know um, demos and unreleased tracks to throw around. Right. Right. Well, back to Mob Rules. Vinny Apice. One thing, again, the book is loaded with so many cool little facts. I never realized the Vinny Apice John Lennon connection. Do you, do you want to talk about that at all? Um, sure. I kind of barely remember it, but um, tell me if I'm getting this right. Um, yeah, they were they were next door or something working on. Was he working on his Axis or or, or Circus or Bruiser album? I can't remember. But for some reason, the reason I get this screwed up is because I also had talked to Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick about this, and he was in uh, on some of those sessions as well. And and I can't remember if he even knows if if the stuff was used or not. But Vinny was basically around, and John Lennon would. Come come in and listen and they'd smoke a bit of pot and he went in and I think Vinny says in there that he ended up doing some hand claps. Right, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Is that is that the Double Fantasy album or was that something earlier? Uh, I, I, I think uh, I, 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 hmm, I, I think that's the Double Fantasy album. I'm not a John Lennon uh, yeah. expert, but I, I think you said uh, whatever gets me through the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll check that. I'll have to. Yeah, that's the it's kind of cool. But yeah, that was his. Uh, you know, talking to Vinny, he just goes back and looks at his career, and he just marvels. Wow, this was so cool. Smoking pot with John Lennon, you know. And didn't they actually <laughs> record some of Mob Rules, or at least write some of Mob Rules in a house that uh, Ringo owned that once belonged to John Lennon? Yeah, the same way that British Steel was done there, but um, with Sabbath. Um, Again, my memory here again, I believe how it worked was that the the first version of Mob Rules that was used on the heavy metal soundtrack was done at Ringo's studio, Startling Studios or Starling Studios or whatever it's called. Right. So the first version, which is totally a different recording than the version that's on the album, was done for the heavy metal, that double album and that movie that came out. You know, with much hype, it's got a Sammy Hager song on there, a, a you know a non-LP Nazareth song, a Riggs song. Um, but Sabbath did Mob Rules for that, and it was one of the most famous songs on it. And then the the crazy, crazy thing is, is that years later the same thing happened with Dehumanizer with um, TV Crimes, right? Uh, right, that was on what the Heavy Metal Two soundtrack or something. No, no, that was on Wayne's World or something. Oh, but, okay. But okay. It, you know, right. again, a version was recorded for a movie, and then they recorded another version that went on the album. So it's the the exact parallel situation happened again to those guys. Very cool, and uh, the mighty Ian Gillen joining forces with the guys. Uh, yeah. 
you want to talk about how that came about? Well, there's there's conflicting stories, but it sounded like it was all, you know, the the uh, subject of a meeting at the pub, and that's where they all got together, but the management, you know, might have got involved uh, before. But, um, you know, I guess there was just a, a mutual admiration there, and so they got together and made that record that uh, a lot of people really, really like, and a lot of people hate, and a lot of people discuss the production, which, you know, most of the band figures is completely botched. But, you know, I, I always liked the production, and I thought it was bizarre, you know, eccentric, but cool. And and it's a very heavy album. And I just think Ian Gillen's great. I mean, I, I literally, you know, sometimes I tell people, like, the band Gillen is my favorite band of all time because they made these five or six albums that are all great. Right. You know, and I told Ian that, and I think he thought I was just pulling his leg. You know, he kind of cracked a smile. It's like, yeah, sure you do. But it's true. I mean, I, you know, that, that band is amazing. So I, I, lo- I love Ian um, you know, as a writer, as a person. He's really cool. And um, it's it's just great that he got in there and, and gave Sabbath that, that really weird twist for one record. Yeah, Born Again, one of my favorite Sabbath records. We actually had cool. him on the, the podcast back last year, and he was one of the most down-to-earth guys I've I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. Yeah, pretty cool guy, for sure. Very nice guy. And he actually, on his uh, recent record, redid Trashed. Yeah. Which was yeah, interesting. Yeah, on Gillen's Inn. Although he didn't play that when I saw the show for, for that tour. Oh, no? Unfortunately, no. Played a lot of really weird stuff, but... Yeah, yeah, that was that was definitely a cool Sabbath album. Cool. Well, we'll wrap up the Sabbath stuff and kind of get into some of your other stuff. But any any thoughts on the future of Black Sabbath? We have, of course, the Heaven and Hell tour, uh, which yeah. is going to be coming out. Which, personally, for me, I you know, being thirty seven, I discovered Sabbath right around Mob Rules, and and Dio was the singer then. So yeah. I have a little bit of a, of a problem that they're not calling this Black Sabbath. Any reason reason why they wouldn't? Well, first of all, Mob Rules was the first time I ever saw Sabbath, too. I mean, that was my first uh, tour. I saw them in Vancouver with the Outlaws backing up. So, yeah, I I have fond memories of that whole thing, too. I've actually now interviewed all four of the guys uh, about Heaven and Hell um, because I'm doing the cover story for our our next issue of Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles on it. Um, And I've actually asked all four of them that question. And the answer is a little bit vague, but it kind of makes sense. Um, you know, and I even posited this with Ronnie, and I said, Ronnie, do you, do you think, you know, you've all given me this this weird answer, but do you think it might be a little bit of heading off at the pass, um, you know, appeasing Sharon even before you upset Sharon about this being Black Sabbath, and, you know, saying, we're going to call it something else, even before she asks you to call it something else kind of thing. And he says, yeah, there might be a bit of that, might be a bit of truth to that. But, you know, Sharon has um, been to Tony's house for dinner. They had a meeting in London. Sharon, you know, Ronnie's quote said, you know, he said, Sharon said, well, you, you know, you guys got to make a living. You know, you can go do this. So it, it doesn't sound like there's really any hard feelings about it. Now, you know, the reason given is that, they don't want confusion. The Black Sabbath that went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is the one with Ozzy, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, what Ronnie said, actually, which is kind of maybe new news for the first time, because I haven't certainly posted this anywhere, but we saw Sharon's, you know, fairly innocuous quote about, uh, oh, there might be an Ozzy, you know, there's going to be an Ozzy, a tour with Ozzy and an album with Ozzy, and right. everybody just rolls their eyes and says, yeah, sure. But Ronnie actually seemed a little bit more um, sure that Sabbath will do a 40th anniversary tour 
with Ozzy. He seemed like like that was really truly likely going to happen. Um, but the commitment I've heard from two of the guys, the commitment of this thing is a full year. So this is a long, long time that they're doing all this. Um, but um, yeah, on on the name, they just kind of wanted something different to demarcate it. And you know, I I my instant gut reaction was I kind of liked the idea because it almost gave a little like shot of adrenaline to the thing. Right. Um, just seeing that up there, it's almost like this is a fresh band. It's almost like it takes four or five years off their lives, you know, by, by giving it a new name. It's like, and it makes them look a little bit more like renegades, um, you know, firing on all sixes, you know, no weak links here kind of thing. Um, so, you know, that, that's really it. And, and, and when it comes down to it, it really doesn't matter. Everybody knows what it is anyways. There's not going to be any confusion. You know, fans who know this stuff aren't going to have the band come through town and miss them because, they didn't notice that it was Black Sabbath or anything like that. Right, and there will be three new songs I read on uh, on BraveWords.com, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, and I've talked to all the guys about those, and basically, well, really only Ronnie or Tony said anything interesting. Ronnie, Ronnie mentioned the whole thing, like he went through the whole thing of all the lyrics, and all three of them sound super interesting. Wow, Like, cool. really, really cool lyrics that they've done for these things. Now, um... You have a, a lot of other great books now. As a, as a kid growing up, I used to just put on the Iron Maiden record and just zone out into the artwork of Derek Riggs. And uh, I was excited because for Christmas, my my wife gave me Run for Cover. Cool. <laughs> how right, did you yeah. uh, How did you decide to uh, put that together? Well, um, a fan in Chicago um, really started this up as quite a bit of an altruistic kind of thing. He wanted to help Derek out and help him make some money, um, and he came up with the whole idea. He put the whole project together. He had a bunch of my books. He called me up and said, do you want to write this? And I said, sure, and him and I went down and visited Derek for um, three days over, over a weekend, and I did a bunch of interviews, and I did a bunch of phone interviews with him as well. And, you know, he he dealt with Derek on getting all the artwork, and he had a lot of his own artwork. He actually collects some um, original heavy metal artwork. He's got some really cool stuff. Um, but he, he gathered all the images and set up the layout um, at his hometown, Chicago, and the people who did the design of the book um, had it printed in China, and that's how it happened. And there was a hardcover first edition that's all sold out. And uh, and a lot of soft covers, and that's that's where it stands. Nine by twelve book, full color throughout. Basically, a, a coffee table book, and it it all got pulled off. It it all worked. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that one. And you have uh, a book about Dio. Yeah, a Dio book came out a little while ago, and uh, a, a rainbow book. And uh, it was funny getting Ronnie on the phone again. You you know you wonder if uh, if the guy thinks you're stalking him, doing these three books on him. <laughs> right. Like that. right. And really, they were all in pretty quick succession. Um, and right now, basically, I've got that series of this: um, the Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal, Volume One, the '70s, Volume Two, the '80s. Came out in '05. Oh, uh, '70s was in '03, and I'm hard at work on <clears throat> getting '90s done for later this year. Oh, great! I'm a big fan of Volume Two, the uh, the one, oh, cool. the Thanks. '80s one. Yeah, yeah. And so '90s is getting done. It's going to be about as long as the '80s, maybe even a little longer. Um, and then I'm done. I'm I'm handing the franchise over to uh, one of the writers for our magazine, David Perry, um, who basically I said. Start writing. Start keeping the stuff. Start keeping it in order because I am not doing the two thousands. I'm I'm done. I'm too right. old. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, 
just to give a plug out to bravewords.com. Now, yep. you set this website up on your own, or were you, was there a team of guys who, who put it together? I'm actually very minor in the whole thing. The boss of the magazine is Tim Henderson, and it's his vision. And um, the guy who lays out our magazine, Hugh Laflamme and his, his brother Blaze, do a lot of the um, computery work on it. <clears throat> and basically, Tim is the guy driving it. He does a lot of the grabbing of the news and news posts. And uh, he's got an employee at the office, and a couple of our other writers work around the clock. One guy in Germany um, does the late-night stuff for us here. Um, I edit. I write reviews. I send stuff in. The stories I edit, they go in. But basically, Tim is just driven to make that thing, you know, people call us the CNN of... um, the the CNN of metal news kind of thing and and we do do a really good job of you know there's a new news item up there every ten minutes or few minutes or something like that um, and it gets a lot of traffic and it does well I mean I I actually use it myself to check out the metal news yeah it's definitely on my favorites it is also linked through talkingmetal.com in our right. links section so all you guys should definitely uh, Check out bravewords.com and add that to your favorites. It's every morning when I get to work, uh, first place I go. Yeah, it's a big part of the magazine now, and, and really in, in a lot of ways it has more power and reaches more people than probably even the magazine. But they, the two work together. And, you know, when we get interviews now, we, we sometimes say, well, we'll throw one to the site and we'll throw one to the magazine kind of thing. So we, we often ask for two interviews. And, and the, the board, the Brave Board, as they call it, is totally, totally you know, hopping. I mean, there is so many people just discussing metal. There's a new thread there up every few minutes kind of thing, it seems. Cool, cool. I mean, it's amazing how the online uh, metal community has kind of come together in this uh, yeah. this new new technology and everything. Sure. The uh, The actual magazine, uh, we usually get it down here in New York, it seems like uh, about a week or or so after I see it up on on the website, right? But it is always worth going to get, and uh, the pictures are always great. In issue one hundred and one, I know you you have a couple stories. Crocus, what's going on with Crocus? Ah, that was funny. <laughs> they they've got a new album, but it's pretty low key. I mean, I think it's a pretty good album, but a lot of our writers kind of trashed it, and it really is just Mark and a bunch of guys now. Mark is really running the show. Um, but I, I love Mark. I, I really like that band. I have a lot of fond memories to listen to them as a kid. Um, yeah, I, I hope they come over here. I would love to get all my vinyl signed. You yeah, know? definitely. It'd be cool. But no, 102s, um, I'm going to have like a three, four-page thing on this whole Heaven and Hell thing. That's going to be the cover story. Cool. Well, we will be waiting for that. You also cover Lamb of God in the uh, one issue 101, which is one of my favorite new bands. We actually had yeah. Mark Morton on the podcast a couple months ago. Cool. Excellent. Yeah, yeah Mark's a nice guy. Yeah, and great new band. So definitely uh, check that out. And let's end uh, today's interview going back to your book, The uh, the Guide to Heavy Metal, Volume 2, The 80s. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to read down your top 10 heavy metal records from the 80s. And you're, ah. you're welcome to, to give a little comment on each one. Cool, if you'd I'd like. like to hear what they are. I can't remember. <laughs> you can't remember. Okay, well, it's a great list. I'll, I'll tell you that. Uh, number 10, Iron Maiden, Peace of Mind. Yeah, that's my favorite Maiden album. That was really the last one that had the full, full-on magic for me. I mean, it, it literally started sliding with the next one, Power Slave. I, I mean, I love Power Slave, and I was totally into it and totally into metal then, but Peace of Mind is just such a solid, you know, distinct piece of work, great drumming, just everything about that album. is just, it's paced well, it's sequenced well, great album. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, and, and it felt like kind of like with, with Power Slave, they started to get away from what they what they were on those four, first four records, which was mm-hmm. just a, a, a amazing heavy metal band. Yeah. Um, although they still are an amazing heavy metal band. I mean, I love the, the newest record. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Flick of the Switch, ACDC. Yeah, you know, Tim and I always talk, Tim from the magazine, we both agree that's the greatest ACDC album, and very few people pick that. It's the heaviest one, I bet. I, I really think it's the heaviest one they ever did. And, um, I, you know, it, this seems like such a weird thing to say, but I, I think they basically got that lineup right after three albums of trying. And that album is so electric and so dense and just so powerful. You know, the one before it is a little bit bluesy and warm. Back in Black, of course, it's a classic, but again, it's a little all over the place. Um, I just think Flick of the Switch is just relentless, perfect ACDC. Very cool. No Place to Run, UFO. Yeah, and again, another strange choice. I mean, I, I really um, I really like the Paul Chapman era uh, over a lot of the Michael Schenker era, actually, wow. you know, when it comes to the percentages, because I think a lot of those Michael Schenker albums are, are just like the production's a little bit gray and boring. Um, you know, the early stuff's a little eccentric, but the, but the Paul Chapman stuff, and that one in particular, and that one was produced by George Martin of, of Beatles fame, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that is neat. Cool. Checking in at seven, a little sabotage. Yeah. What did I put? The first album? Sirens. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When we got that album, I remember looking at the indie version of that album when I first saw it in the store and picking it up and going, what the hell is this? You know, it's like, you know, with the old cover right on Par Records, the old, um, you know, the the blue ship cover and all that. I flip it over and I look... Well, they do have a song called Twisted Little Sister, so that must be a Twisted Sister reference. So this must be heavy metal, and it does say the drummer plays cannons or something like that. So I suppose it's going to be metal, and I remember getting it home thinking, this is the greatest album I've ever heard. You know, the production, just the playing, the singing, everything about that record was, it was almost like a new state of the art. Cool, and number six, not moving pictures, but signals, Rush. Yeah, another weird choice because that was the first pronounced, um, you know, drop down from the electric guitars. But I just think that album has just got this creamy sound and it's just so unified and so sophisticated. I I just found it um, just really, really professional and studied and considered. I just just think there's just a lot of neat variety on that record and it took a lot of bravery to do something like that. And at number five, you uh, chose Thin Lizzy. A lot of people remember Thin Lizzy as more of a 70s band, but they did have a couple great records in the 1980s. Renegade is what you chose for number five. I, yeah. I love Thunder and Lightning, too. That's an amazing record. Yeah, although that is just so harsh on the production, I have a hard time. Uh, you know, and the other thing about Thin Lizzy that that um, that I've always found interesting, I remember reading once where they almost didn't want to put Angel of Death on Renegade because they thought it was too cheesy heavy metal. Well, I think there's three or four songs on Thunder and Lightning that are just too heavy metal as well. Right. This band is almost like above heavy metal. They're just too sophisticated. And Renegade is a funny choice. Some people do like it. There's a small number of fans that like it. I mean, it, it is a little mellower but i just love the the smooth plush production and the and the playing i I just find it like a really aristocratic sort of album definitely and dio last in line at number four 
Yeah, that was my favorite Dio album. Um, you know, it's very similar to the first album, but I found that one just a little more note dense and sophisticated, and um, it just it just hit me at the right time in my youth, kind of thing. Um, just great fast songs on it, great solos. Uh, I just thought it was uh, an improvement on Holy Diver, which was a great album, but maybe just a little bit cruder. Um, but then, but then, last in line was just a little bit more um, considered, studied. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Grim Reaper, see you in hell at number three. That's pretty bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I put that on my list for sure, somewhere in the top twenty or whatever. But to see I put a number three, that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, that that was uh, just a really magical, scary, interesting album with a lot of mystical. Um, enigmatic quality to it from the new wave of British heavy metal. It it was it was crude. It was kind of it seemed like it sped up and slowed down. It was uh, you know the production was bizarre but but cool. Very very electric. Great singing. Just great great songs and not very flashy playing or anything like that. Just a just a real real personable new wave of British heavy metal. Album. Cool. And at number two, not master of puppets, but ride the lightning. Definitely. Um, I always thought that Master Puppets, when I got that, you know, this is basically they're retreading Master, or they're retreading Ride the Lightning. Although, great album, and I have another book called The Top 500 Heavy Metal Albums of All Time, which is sadly sold out. I wish I could get some of them. But we took a huge, huge poll of all sorts of people, and that actually won. Master Puppets won Greatest Heavy Metal Album of All Time for that book. Um, but to me, Ride the Lightning, I remember getting that home, and I think I, I either, I, the story is somewhere, but I, I either brought that home the same time as both Sabotage Sirens and Savage Loose and Lethal, or maybe just one of them, but I remember dropping the needle you know, starting off um, Fight Fire with Fire and that acoustic yeah. intro. And then when that kicks in, that absolutely, you know, basically they tore up the rule book and, and you know, whacked the next level up on the old Richter scale. Nothing, nothing was ever that heavy before. Um, Production-wise, playing, sophistication, it was just... That album, you know, the fast, the slow, the the instrumental, everything about it is just absolutely perfect to me. Yeah, I I remember the same thing getting that record home, and I I hadn't had Kill 'Em All. That was the first exposure I had to Metallica, and just being blown away by Fight Fire with Fire. Yeah, definitely. And you know, Kill 'Em All. You know, we we had that album right when it came out, and we played it. And we thought Metallica, great band, one of our favorite bands, great great new band. These guys are going places, but really, Kill 'Em All is not that sophisticated an album. What what they do. What's so great about it is they they come up with like about fifteen of of the greatest, most immediate, excellent heavy metal riffs of all time. But then all, that's all it is. They just they just hammer you with those riffs. There's just really nothing all that sophisticated about Kill 'Em All. Great album as it is. Right, definitely. And at number one, except Balls to the Wall. Ah, that's a funny choice too. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that would maybe make my top. 15 or whatever, but, you know, all those obviously could be jumbled around, but that record, I do recall, you know, when people ask you, what are your favorite records, and sometimes you you offer a bit of a, um, I better answer this properly so nobody thinks I'm an idiot, right? and, you know, and thinks I'm, you know, not cool, but then you stand back and go, well, if I, if I answer this truthfully, one of the big ways of doing it should be, what did I just play to death? over and over and over again. Maybe that should be the criteria. And that album I played to death over and over and over again. I just thought it was so 
classy how it was understated and subdued and didn't go too fast and the production was really conservative and and they repeated the riffs over and over and I just I just found that record just had so much personality to it even though um, Restless and Wild might be the flashier album, the cruder, the faster album, the more wild heavy metal album. To me, this was just like a really, really cool, sophisticated, great, great example of great songwriting. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, that's uh, a lot of it, too, is is wh- where you were in your life when you experienced exactly, music, yeah. I think, that makes yeah. it so great to each and every one of us. God, and... what, are, what are five of yours? Oh, five of mine. I, you know, I think I would go with, uh, I, I like Master of Puppets a lot. I have to say uh, that's probably one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, let there, well, if, if we're just talking, I don't know if we're just talking 80s right now, but but Let There Be Rock, uh, which is 70s, is <laughs> yeah. is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. I, I like a lot of the Judas Priest stuff, uh, Screaming for Vengeance, which I, I noticed, I don't, I, is that even in your top 100? You know, I have some big problems with that album, and those those big problems are "Take These Chains," "You Got Another Thing Coming," "Devil's Child," and "Fever." And when you when you pick four songs off an album with nine songs on it, or whatever it is, maybe it's even eight songs if you don't count "Hellion," like you don't like that album very much. So I I do have a problem with that album, but Judas Priest to me, I uh, actually probably did more for heavy metal than anybody on this planet because when you look at the run from Sad Wings through Sin After Sin, Stained Class, and Hellbent for Leather, Hellbent for Leather actually is one of my favorite albums of all time. When you take those four, I mean, those guys are gods to me forever. Basically, for me, it, it started getting it, it started getting dumbed down when Dave Holland joined the band. So, no, I, I couldn't put that up there because there's four Kiss songs on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. Some of my other favorites, uh, of course, the Zeppelin stuff. I, I, I like, you know, I, I like Heaven and Hell. Uh, one of my oh, yeah. definitely favorite records. Yeah, for sure. And, Ronnie's favorite record he's ever done. Yeah, I read that actually yeah. in there. Yeah. 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 But a lot of good stuff, and everybody has their favorites. And, What's your Zeppelin picks? Uh, my Zeppelin picks. I, I like. Zeppelin two a lot, and I, I and that might be partly just because of of how I was exposed to it. And I know Zeppelin four is not a cool thing to say, but it it just it, in sixth grade when I discovered it, it just like opened up my ears to a whole new world. Yeah, cool. uh, I'm a big Kiss fan. I like Kiss Alive. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, that that made a lot. That was a huge huge record for me too. I mean, that was I think my first record I ever ever had on vinyl. Cool. Um, and. Uh, well, you got in pretty early then, eh? Yeah, I, I, I guess I got in. You know, and it was Kiss because they were such a a, a comic book, yeah, type of band that you know I saw them on the Paul Lynn uh, Halloween special. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. You know, I was hooked as as a real little kid. You know. Yeah. And um, our funny Kiss Alive story. Uh, um, maybe you might have read this somewhere because I think I stuck it in a book or two. But uh, we had we had gone to the 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 city dump. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a town of about 10,000 people, right? And, you know, right. you're just little kids. You go to the dump. You're just looking for crap or whatever. You're just, I don't know what you're doing. But anyway, so so we go to the dump, and there's this big pile of pristine, you know, it must have been like a four-inch stack of untouched April Wine 1974 tour posters. Oh, wow. And they're all like purple and black psychedelic. 
So we had a we had one of our little elementary school dances planned, and we took those posters and put them all around every single wall of our basement rec room, from from ceiling to floor, cutting out for the light switch, all that. Right? Yeah. Just made this room look look wild. So we had everybody over, and then you know we had this little dance going, and you know the girls all want to hear Elton John, and we're playing slipping as much heavy stuff as we could. And we're all in like grade five or something like this, right? And uh, one of our buddies shows up late, and he brings Kiss Alive. And there was this huge dog pile, like, on top of him, and he's holding the album out, you know, so it doesn't get ruined. And we're all just, like, on top of him. And that was the end of the dance. It was like, just, okay, Kiss Alive for the whole rest of the day. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Very funny. A couple others I'm just thinking about. Queensryche, Operation Mindcrime. What do you think of Queensryche? You know, I I only bought into Queensryche in a big big way for like the warning. I remember I was I was still playing drums and trying to be a good drummer, and that was that was a big big heavy metal year for me, 1984. I was just so into metal, even though I was 21 years old by that point. Um, but that was a huge huge metal time, and I loved the warning. And then and then it just kind of faded a little over the years. I was I, obviously that's a great pick. Everybody loves that album. You got great taste, of course, picking that. Um, well, but um, I was just never I was just never really never got into Queensrÿche after that record for some reason. Cool. Well, Guns and Roses. I think uh, Appetite for Destruction for me personally was it was a, a real important record. What what is your opinion on Guns? For Guns, I'm I'm a very contrarian Guns fan. Um, I never thought that record was that much of a big deal, and really no one did it for about a year and a half until it really started breaking. Um, but I do like Guns a lot, but it's not reason, really for that reason. I, I really like Illusion 1 and 2. Um, I love those two records together. I loved. I got into the huge hype around it when they were coming out, and the fact that it was it was this double and stuffed full of songs, and I, I really got into Guns right around that time. But you know, my, I always I always say my favorite band that is like Guns and Roses that should have been bigger than Guns and Roses is Love Hate. Love Hate, sure. Oh God, those Jizzy Pearl, albums, right? Yeah, that second album is one of my favorite albums of all time. Wasted in America, just so nasty yet sophisticated it's just a really really cool album and and that's the kind of band granted it's like five years later i mean yeah. you, you can't even compare but um i i just thought there were other bands just as good as guns and rose that maybe could have been that big cool well fair enough and uh thanks again so much martin for coming on the podcast hey, thanks today. for having me this is fun yeah Definitely i mean fun. that's what we do here we talk metal and uh and it's a lot of fun and uh you're welcome back anytime, and we encourage all our listeners, again, to go to the bookstore and pick up your books. They're, they're all a great read, and your personality comes through in all of them, which I think oh, is, is important. Yeah, people can email me. I'll answer all questions, whatever. You know, it's, uh, That's cool. Okay, well, thank you very much, Martin, and we will talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. 